a book is the remains of you at all your best writing moments. You know, it is it is better than what you can actually do because it's the best of a, this series of moments and this series of decisions you've made over a very long time that survives after you've got rid of all the worst stuff. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is author Charles Bach, who I really wanted to get on here. Uh, He came on my radar with a novel that was really successful, critically, I think commercially it did very well, called Beautiful Children. Um, Bach himself was raised in Las Vegas. He's a huge boxing fan. His parents ran a pawn shop. And I remember reading about his background in a New York Times profile of him, and I thought, my God, a kid growing up in a pawn shop in Las Vegas, how do you, how do you fuck that up? Just whatever that life was, what an incredible backdrop to a sensitive observer who also is just a really talented wordsmith. Um, and beautiful children crystallize that. And um, what I talked to with Bach about was what it was like being a boxing fan when it's just his backyard, Las Vegas, the epicenter of the sport, really, as it moved over from New York. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Charles Bach. Men beat the shit out of each other, specifically in a location where you grew up, Las yes, Vegas, Nevada. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, because Las Vegas was to become the fastest growing city in this fine country of ours until the real estate collapse oh, and it's... turned it into the worst hit city in the country, I believe. For a little while, but now, I mean, before all this hit, uh, uh, it had some recovered and like, a suburb city of Vegas called Henderson had become had like taken over as the fastest growing city. And uh, so like, so it was still, it's still growing and growing. And yes, I, you know, I was born, I came of age in the seventies and eighties in Vegas. And because my parents had first, they had a, you know, they still have the pawn shops in downtown Las Vegas, but they also opened at a certain point, they opened a liquor store downtown and we would get every poster for every fight. <laughs> we, you know, because the distributors, Budweiser, whoever it was, would bring them and they put them up. And it, this was the time when, like, pay-per-view was not at home. There was not the technology for you to, for someone to buy a fight and watch it in their home. It was all, like, if you wanted to watch Leonard versus Duran one, let's say, which is what, 79, right? You had to go to a bar that bought, that paid for it, or you had to go to like the arenas, you know, like little, they, they theaters bought it and, and you had to go and watch it there. Sure. And, uh, and uh, so we would, so these were just, but there was, remember, you know, boxing was just such a, had a mass, such a massive hold on the country, really because of Ali. Um, and, and then, and, and Vegas was just, was the place for, I mean, neither of the Duran Leonard fights were there, but 
so many monster fights of the 80s were in Vegas. You know, all the Holmes big fights were in Vegas. Uh, yeah. And and uh, Leonard Hearns was Vegas and Hearns Hagler was, uh, was Vegas. And right. Both Leonard, both or both Leonard Hearns and I think Leonard Hagler were all Vegas. So, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot there. Well, and so tell me, tell me about Vegas at that time growing up there, because I remember you first came on my radar. My dad read, I think it was a 2008 New York Times, a Sunday Times. Yeah. yeah. And rumor had it that you wrote this book called Beautiful Children. And from the first sentence, I thought, we have to go out and buy this immediately. This guy grew up with both his parents running a pawn shop. How, how do you, it's like the... Zapruder film, like you're just at such an unbelievable place of exposure. Unbelievable, unbelievable. No, it's true. It's absolutely true, and uh, you don't know it. And Vegas at that time, like the the pawn shop of you know, at first it was. I mean, my parents, my grandfather had one literally on Fremont Street, huh. on Fremont Street, and one of one of my ways of wasting time in adulthood is like to go back and find postcards of old Fremont street where you can see the sign, you know? And, uh, but we grew up, I grew up and, and it's actually part of, you know, there's a chapter in beautiful children that describes going to, you know, this, this old guy's pawn shop as a child and all the wonders that it contained. And then, the person's aunt gets a job in the pawn shop. And that was my way of kind of putting it in without it making it be matchy matchy about my family, you know, giving some distance and being allowed to create a little bit. But um, then my parents' shop was really for 30 years was right behind the golden nugget right off Fremont mm -hmm. street. They, they got a loan from my grandpa uh, uh, and, and, and took over kind of a, a shop from a guy who wanted to get out. And, you know, my whole teen years were spent going down there like I we every day, unless I was on, you know, had basketball practice every day, uh, going down and then closing up the stores and then we'd go eat at a either a buffet or like a steakhouse. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, the, the, the sports club that I worked out at, you know, young Mike Tyson hung out there. He just did, you know, like when they, before he started fighting in Vegas, they didn't have anywhere to put him at night. Right. And so they kind of put him in the, this 24 hour sports club where he hung out and he, you know, hung out by the front desk and, and, and chatted up the, the ladies who worked there and then came and worked out and tried to play basketball. And, <laughs> you know, it was just, and it was just astonishing. Like, you don't know what a free, what a odd world that is you have n just no idea and uh, of, of of what it is when you're growing up in it but it was also you know downtown vegas was was a dangerous place it was it was you know the west coast i mean like there's a tenderloin out in san francisco there was there's times square and downtown Vegas was right, right there with them, only just more, you know, gambling. But it was a, you know, when I was 16, I used to go back and forth, drive back and forth to, to my parents' store. And, and people would stop your, you know, when you'd be stopped at a red light, people would run up and try and sell you drugs. Huh. That, was, that was just, 
that was part and parcel of the that world. Yeah. Well, and so tell me, like, I mean, it's fascinating to me. Just I've always been obsessed with pawn shops. I kind of view whenever you return to a place that you've loved, like traveling or even people, you know, you meet an ex-girlfriend or something, it metaphorically completely is a pawn shop to me (laughs) of memories, of of things you held dear that have suddenly transformed and and, um, your relationship to them and, and this awareness of the distance between who you are now versus who you were then, um, you are you are living behind the the counter that is essentially, if I'm not mistaken, a repository of broken dreams. Well, I mean, there's a level of that that's just undeniably true. That's that what you're saying is absolutely true and is very well put. There's also a level where there's people, you know, in Vegas, and I'm I'm sure this is true in 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 many places. There's people who are not working in a bank in a bank economy where they have re- they have family heirlooms or they have certain things that are of value and those things are used when they don't they don't have bank accounts or they don't have savings and like and um when things are tough when when it was a hard month and there's bills to pay maybe you take the gram- grandma's watch or or a certain thing and you go and you take it to the pawn shop and then everything comes and then you you have a good month and you have some leftover and you take it out but grandma's watch becomes part of your resources that you use mm-hmm. and there's just times there's times where it's going in and <laughs> and and my parents store had a lot of people like that huh. it, they they it, and there there was people that they had relationships with and that they knew and if they if things were going tough those people would call and say, hey, can I have a little extra time? And some of those items would be not so valuable. But then there would also be items like that and people like that that were really big money, big ticket items that um, that would come there and that might be the same thing. I mean, I there were times where they would close the store to deal with customers because these were people who were gambling big, big amounts of money. And we're going to cover those bets with, you know, high-end jewelry. So I think it, it is true. And probably there is a large percentage of it where it is, it's tragic. And I certainly grew up watching that. And, and I think I have that tragic uh, part of me is, is like deep, deep in my bones. Yeah. But it's also, it's also true that it's not all that way, you know, that there's also a way where it, it, it provides a certain service to to people to a level of a class of people that just are not are not serviced by a bank economy well and and when you look at i mean when i've seen documentaries on las vegas or i showed up there or hunter s thompson signs a book deal i think your publisher was random house right yes yes so I mean, after after he does Hell's Angels and identifies the Hell's Angels not as an aberration of American society, but a natural byproduct, right? Of where we were, which is a pretty shrewd insight. Um, he begins. Uh, he embarks on the death of the American dream, a project right. 
he never finishes and really never really starts until he writes his until he finds Vegas and identifies that as the scene of the crime in essence. Right, right, right. right. So, so I wonder with that book or with Leaving Las Vegas, which is one of my favorite books, despite how unbelievably crushingly depressing it is. Yeah, brutal, brutal, yeah. yeah. Leaving, uh, leaving aside, the guy shoots himself after he writes it before oh it becomes my God. a success. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Also, let's just be honest. If he doesn't put a, shoot himself, no one ever discovers that book. It's just too down. It's true, it's true isn't it? Oh, my God. I mean, it's, it's just heart, heart crushing, heart crushing book. Yeah. Yeah. And story. Yeah. So but I felt like your book, which I loved at the time, which was very I mean, you described 11 years working on this book and 10, how, yeah, 10 11. Yeah. Yeah. 10, 11. You're struggling over revisions. Um, you know, how many different jobs were you working to try and stay afloat in New York? Like, oh, it was. Yeah. No, I mean, I. I, I was the epitome. I tell my students, you know, you don't want my experience. You just don't want it. I, I really, and, and, you know, it, I did it the wrong way, but I was just so pigheaded and I had a rent stabilized apartment. So I didn't have a huge overhead. Uh. If I, my overhead would have been larger, I would have had to leave. I would have either had to to, to give up and, and go full time at something, or I would have had to leave Manhattan and go somewhere else and try and find a way to get it done. Um, that, that was, that's just true. Yeah. But I had every, I had every shit job you could imagine, you know, uh, third shift legal proofreader, test proctor. I was a bad, bad waiter for brief amounts of time. I was a ghost writer, uh, I worked at tabloids, you know, like as a rewrite guy on deadline day, you know, uh, just, just, you know, hand to mouth, really, it was a hand to mouth existence. Yeah. Did you, do you think in some way, like when you think back about the kind of people that you would see come into your parents' shop, um, is there something for people, I, I Maybe I'm being presumptuous here, but people like us who can romanticize lives lived at the extremes that you became one of those kind of people. Like, wasn't this a big bet in a lot of ways? Oh, it was a massive bet. It, yeah. was, a, it was a massive bet. And and now X years later, there's probably a decent question as to in the long term, whether it paid off, um, you know, whether it was really the best use of my life. But uh, it was. And I, I would have never thought that way. Although I did think, you know, I did think to myself, my God, if I don't sell this book, I'm going to be selling shoes forever or I'm going to be in a, a asylum. I, like, what have I done? Uh, I had a, a mentor and a teacher kind of tell me, well, you wrote yourself into this corner and now you have to write yourself out of it. And uh, I did. I did take it that way, you know, and. But I also took it that way and also didn't try and compromise myself artistically and uh uh you know i took it that way with the idea that i'm going to write the book that i need to write that was always my goal was to write the book that i felt i had had to write the novel i had to write so what i mean i was reading that in 2008 i was 29 years old i've been writing full-time for 10 years couldn't sell a single word 
and I really, really wanted to dislike you because yeah. of all this publicity you were getting. Of course, of course. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And found myself immediately liking you, uh, like just in the review. And I think the New York Times had two things about you. One was about like a big profile and then yeah. another review about the book itself where it's like, how can you not cheer this guy on was my feeling. Despite <laughs> how much incredible antipathy I had selfishly to well, it paying off. Well, that shows your big good heart. <laughs> because believe me, there were many, this was right, you know, it was right when the internet, where things were moving to the internet, where kind of the, the con, if there was a conversation about books at all, whatever, however small it is, it was starting to take place through blogs and things like that, and less on, on print. There it was, I was kind of in the middle of that transition. And there were a lot of people who were like, you know what? We don't go to parties with this. This is the guy we don't know from Paris Review parties. We don't know who he is. We don't know who is, who's his rabbi, mm. how this happened. And we are jealous and, and he can't be that good because I don't know about him. And, and there was, you know, it's kind it's so nice that you felt that way. I, I wish, you know, it's natural for anyone to kind of go like, why isn't that me? I'm working my ass off. I'm trying real hard. Why don't I, what, where, when's my turn? I, I certainly, I certainly feel that way. You know, I, 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 I have that opinion sometimes when I've seen different writers and, and kind of not wanted to be generous towards them, but hopefully their work makes you generous towards them. You know, like hopefully you can give someone a fair read and, uh, you know, it did, but there, I, I feel like I have had been lucky in that there's people who, who do, who are sympathetic to kind of what the book was about and are sympathetic to a little more of the, the struggle side of things and the, the gritty, which is more up my alley. And, you know, and then there's also people who, who, uh, who aren't that way and who feel like they need the pedigree and need to have someone else say how great it is first or have someone they know tell them or they need to have the inside dope. And when they don't have it, they feel slighted or people who, who can't see that if someone else can make it this way, that means you, you can make it that way, you know, sure. that, that that means that it is possible for someone to just put their head down, do the work and maybe write something that can, that can garnish some attention, uh, that, 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 that is still possible as opposed to, you know, it's all connections and glad handing and, and who, you know, I, I do believe that good books find a, find a life. I, I, they may not be the life that the author wants them to find because that's just, that's just not how our world works, you know? And, but I do believe that a good book will find it someone who wants to, to, to put it in the world and eventually it will find readers, you know, it may take a while. And that doesn't mean that it, the writer is going to be able to uh, uh, buy dinner, yeah. <laughs> but but I, you know, your, you know, your Cuba boxing book seems to me an example of it. It's a good book. What can you, you know, and maybe you would go back now, 10 years later, and you would do, you know, you and might 
you might say to yourself, language would be different. I would do this or I would do that. But if you care about boxing and if you care about kind of the differences in cultures and Teofilo Stevenson, this this guy who legitimately could have had a chance to be Muhammad Ali, who could have, maybe he could have beat Mali. Maybe he could have had three great fights with Ali. We don't, we never get a chance to know. And he doesn't get a chance to know. What a great, you know, if you care about that stuff, it's going to find you, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think, I think with yours too, where it found me was, I mean, I, I immediately read about your biography. Like the Times had a, this big thing about a backstage pass into who you were and then about the book. And then I'm reading the book. I'm doing almost all three simultaneously. But it was that you had got out of your own way. I mean, most writers I find are insufferable because they combine these two horrible character traits of being unbelievably arrogant and unbelievably insecure. Right. I'm just unbelievably insecure. And me too. And me too. <laughs> you know, and, and so when you get out of your own way and I start meeting all these people that are coming to the pawn shop and all the characters that you spread out in, into this world that you create, it reminded me a lot of like, like my dad ran his own child protection law firm, but a lot of the people who come in there had no money originally to get a will or to do a divorce. Right. So the family car was very often somebody who couldn't pay, and he'd just be like, hey, I have this piece of shit 1978 Oldsmobile. Could you take that and do my divorce? And suddenly my dad would pick me up at school in this car I'd never seen before. <laughs> like, what? How did this happen? <laughs> That's amazing. It was that a is a great. I mean, it's horrible, but it's great. Well, it was just really weird, and, and he liked to name the cars, so he'd of be course. like, Get in, this is pig. I'm like, how many? What did he do? Did he then sell them or fix them up, or did he I, sell them back to the people? Like, how, did you have nine cars on your lawn? No, we never had a series of, but just things like this would happen because, you know, he's operating a law clinic. You know, it's not a pawn shop on the strip or just off the strip, but he was operating near. Like the he looked after, but by the end he was looking after a third of Vancouver's at-risk kids. So Vancouver has a massive community right. of drug addicts and and poverty and you know IV drug use, HIV infection, intravenous drug, intravenous infection. So he was doing what he could, you know, just to help people out that just couldn't. Like like you're describing, people that didn't have a bank account maybe to pay their bills, so it becomes barter. And I remember very often him taking me to flea markets that were in a bad side of town. I remember the Terminal Avenue flea market, which is what he used for his law firm. There was a woman he called the paper lady who sold unbelievable quantities of paper. And we would load up the car with paper for his office and he'd pay 10 bucks or something for it. He had to beg her to take more money. And then one day we went in and she disappeared because somebody had murdered her and dumped her in a, a trash bin or something. And I was like, she was an old lady, like a nice, sweet old lady. Like, how, how does this happen? So I, I just found that your book offered such a sympathetic portrait of these misfit characters that my, my dad always introduced me to. And... 
it wasn't like a guy after 11 years trying to make him the champion of the world and of Las Vegas and, and all of that. Like you, you really got out of yourself to look around you and, and allow all these magical people to, to infect your, your book. And I just love the spirit that was capable of that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I mean, thank you. It's so nice of you to say, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, it's very, you know, at a certain point, I think you have to decide. I, I, I kind of, do I get it done fast or do I get it right? And yeah. am I, am I, am I trying, what am I in it for? And, you know, and I do think mm -hmm. that the writing has a certain, I mean, I, it has a certain style and, and a certain uh, 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 quality to it. But I also, as I would continue to work on it, I would also try and eliminate anything that wasn't helping the story. And you try and learn to use language so that it, so that it bends to what you need to do, as opposed to your story having to bend around your language, you know, and, and I think I did grow up as a, as a, as a, as a, a novelist or as a fiction writer to a large degree, like, yeah, that's where I, I learned how to do it uh, with that book. And um, so it's very nice of you to say, you know, and uh, yeah, it, and uh, uh, it's interesting. Uh, last year, at some point, I went and I had to teach somewhere and they asked me to send like 30 pages of the book so that the students could read it. And I hadn't I hadn't cracked it open in a while. Um, and what, so when I was kind of going and making the copies and, and cause I, I don't even know if I have it on, I think I have drafts on my computer, but I don't think I have like a, the full finished version just sitting on my computer pristine. So I, I was going and, and kind of making copies of the pages and I started reading them and I did have this feeling of, you know what, this is good. This is better than I remember. I could actually write, you know? There was a time where I could really go. Mm -hmm. I like this book. And 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 um so that's a that's always a that's kind of a pleasure. I don't know if you have that feeling of going back uh, back to your early work and or your you know, your first book and saying, Yeah, you know what? I all right. I, I like that guy. Well, you know, you know what it is for me, Charles, that's awkward. It's like my girlfriend and I have been going through a lot of old movies, like classics, and she's lived most of her life in books, but not so much movies. And I kind of half and half. And right. I'm aware it's magical to share like my favorite, you know, Casablanca, Hitchcock, um, you know, Antonioni, these meaningful things. Yeah. But if she's not laughing, I feel bad. Right, right. Yes, 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 yes. Makes total sense. And so I'm aware that in my own writing that what I love to share with friends is unexpected laughter. But unfortunately, having a Hungarian mother means I have a vicious oh, yeah. sense of humor that I'm very bashful to share when I write. And so I, I think that things come off a little too serious that, that it embarrasses me. That they're they're a little too somber, right? Right. Because yeah, because yeah. 
Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I could understand that. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I hear you. Well, I want to ask you, though, because I think it's interesting. And I think when I was researching, like rereading a bunch of stuff about you and rereading some of your work, I was thinking to have it hit the way you did, which in the old days is like what happened to Jack Kerouac, where after years, no, 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 but it, it, to a much take down about forty percent. Well, <laughs> the times, well, the, I I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think I think to be fair, I think that the kind of write up that you got, the kind of reviews, the way the yeah. publisher embraced it was very similar to kind of what would happen to a Kerouac or a Fitzgerald or a Hemingway, but the times are different. Right. Well, that's, you know what, that's a good point. And the sales were certainly different. And the sales were certainly different. <laughs> certainly different. But, 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 you know, it did not, let's say, like someone else who had that effect, you know, uh, Jonathan Fuller, but he also had the New Yorker behind him. And, and he also wrote a book that is just delightful and whatever, truth there is about however funny or smart or deep or or interesting my book is my book really doesn't compromise you know it doesn't and not that his did but he had a different vision for what he wanted to do whereas I was trying to write about I was writing in the tradition of you know things like uh revolutionary road and Kerouac and people that I I love and and it's not, it's, you know, the second half of the, my book get is, which I love, it gets, it gets super dark and, um, and it didn't, and it, it's not a book for ladies who drink, who have a little bit of drinky poo on their Sunday afternoon at the book club. <laughs> well, you I know, have... they're like, what the fuck is this? Like, there's a 25 yeah. page section about how women get involved with pornography and they, you know, like. That's not for the book club or, or, or for that book club, you know, and, and so it didn't, it didn't have the legs that you're talking about. It had the, the immediate, uh, the immediate, imp, the immediate explosion was there, but um, I, I've always kind of uh, had to live with the fact that it didn't, it didn't have the legs that, that you're talking about. I wish it had. Well, but that's but it's just a different world. It's a, it's a different kind of people out there. It is. It is a different time. It, you know, there's not a, there's none of the primacy with this medium that these other people had. Right. There was no alternative. You know, I mean, on the road is coming out. What in the early 50s, like movies are, are you know, TV is barely there. Like, there's not the alternatives of entertainment. But what I what I'm curious about is, is it's always interesting to me when you have this huge like Hitchcockian buildup of anticipation of what it's going to be like, if my book comes out, you've created this explosive in your basement out of homemade ingredients and it fucking detonates and the publisher is all over it. You're, you know, you're not making $10 million for an advance, but you're getting a good, good chunk of cash. I mean, not relative to 11 years working on it, but I mean, not, I remember that being reported that your advance was notable for a first novel. The Times comes out. It's, you know, hailed as being a major yeah. thing. The profile is this sounds like one of the most interesting people in the country. 
who has a book that is commiserate with how interesting he is. And, and yet, you know, at a fraction of that, I've had a couple of people say, like, when the Times did a little profile about me teaching people to box in a tunnel, I had a lot of... I remember of, that. I remember that, yeah. And yeah. I, I had a lot of people say, get ready, Bryn. Your life is never going to be the same. Everything's going to change. Obama's going to be reading about this on Sunday. And do you know how many books that that sold? Tell me. 1,500. Right. Right. Well, we just, we're, you know, we're, it's a different, it's just, it's, it's a different time in a different world now. It, it just, and, and I, and it's, it's just true. And in my case, you know, what, six months, no, a year and a half after that, that book came out, uh, my wife got, you know, I had, we had a six month old baby and my wife had, uh, uh, got advanced uh, leukemia. Yeah. And, uh, or not leukemia. I'm sorry. She got it, you know, she got the bone cancer and, um, and that, and whatever, you know, I think I maybe had a chance to find out what I could do. And, and then that, but then no, no, you know, like, because when everything happened, I did think, I thought like you, I thought, life is going to change. And it seemed for a little while that it was about to change, you know, like maybe there could have been a movie of it, but, but movies of books really don't get made, <laughs> you know, 99% of that is just, is just a huge hand job. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it just, and it's, and if you get some meals out of it and meet some people you like and have some good stories to tell, then great. But, um, you know it that in my case the the studio the the studio that bought the the rights to it and it seemed like it was going in one direction and then and then they got folded into a major studio so they just they shut down you know like uh and you know the albert joke brooks joke from defending your life where they ask him you know, he didn't in fact invest in Timex watches, and instead he invested in some kind of cattle. And they're like, "What? What happened with the cattle?" And he's like, uh, "I don't know. I, I never get an answer about it." You know, like it's kind of like that. You just can't get an answer. You know, it just doesn't. It just goes away. And then uh, I could, you know, like it just didn't. It just didn't. I'm not a person who who I didn't. I'm not a uh, a networker. Uh, I'm not someone that uh, I and it just I it just didn't happen. And then I had family emergencies. My wife was you know I had to try and save my wife's life and take care of a little baby. And um, it's it is interesting because I do. And then of course my hometown paper runs things about what happened to him or, you know, what it never was he was and things like that. And, you know, and, and that's just kind of, you know, you, uh, it's interesting because like the great, that great, um, the FX O'Toole book of short stories. Oh yeah. Rope burns. You know, rope burns, you know, and the first story talks about, the guys who stay up at night years later remembering a certain combination and what they should have done or how close it had been. Sure. And um, 
I think we all have that. We all have that with people in our lives that we wish it had went different with. And we all have moments and there's probably moments where I have huge amounts of feeling like, why didn't, you know, I was on the, you know, I did have that moment of being on the cover of the times and, and, and in the magazine, but, um, and why am I not riding around on Lear jets, you know, with my Netflix series or whatever. But the truth is, uh, that I, I got, you know, the, the flip of that is, well, I got, I finished it. I had a, I had, I had a, I did have a moment. I do, I still have whatever ability I have to write and life may be different for me now, taking care of, you know, kid on my own and, 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 and this and that and being older, but I know, I know that if, uh, I have to believe in, whatever pass I have, you know, like, yeah, I don't, you know, like Ali was never, never moaned and bitched about, uh, uh, Parkinson's, you know, but at the same time, Joe Frazier had every right to bitch and moan about living on top of a gym the last 20 years of his life. I mean, he was fucking Joe Frazier. He was in two of the three greatest fights that ever of all time. Yeah. He deserved better. He deserved better. Of all people who, you know, and he had, I mean, at the end, he was malicious, I guess. But his whole life, I don't think he, him as a, he didn't have a malicious bone in his body. Uh, no, he's a decent guy. Right. He was a decent man, you know, and he helped Ali when Ali was, 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 was uh, being persecuted by the government. He gave him money. How do you, Charles, how do you get, I, I mean, my first exposure to death was when I was five and my dad told me that my grandmother had been flown into the city and that she likely had uh, pancreatic cancer. Right, right, right. And like very, very quickly after that, maybe a few days later, he was like, we're going into the hospital to see her. And I, I was five. I just didn't understand right, you can't. the irrevocability of it. And I remember him saying just before we got in, I was like, okay, she's sick. She's going to be like, when is she going to get better? And he was right. like, she's not going to get better. Right. She's jaundiced right now. That means she's yellow because right. her organs are having problems and she's going to have tubes in her nose and she's going to be drugged up and she might be a little foggy and fuzzy, but this is important that you have a chance to to say goodbye. This woman loves you, and this is your this is your one chance to say goodbye. And I was like, right, "What right. are you talking about?" Right, right, right. right. But course, I, course. but I really appreciated. I mean, at first I was very angry because D Daddy was supposed to solve everything. Right. Um, but I felt like it was a way of trusting that. It was okay that death was part of life. It was something that nobody could control and that this was an important lesson and that on balance, life was a good deal. Even if you were going to lose somebody that felt like they, they just entered my life. I was supposed to have years and years of memories and stuff to happen. And now um, her role was just to like show up and disappear. Right. Um, I want to understand how you go from such heights after 11 years of toiling to have this, you know, a really good success, even if it wasn't exactly what right. you dreamed of, to the uh, just unbearable news of your wife and having a kid who's so young and so 
how do you how do you just day to day deal with that diagnosis where chances are there's there's no coming back from it and I mean like the tenor of your relationship to your daughter becomes transformed into something so yeah. so fraught with the loss of this this wife and mother uh well, that's a good, I mean, those are good questions and I wish I had good answers for you. Um, you know, you just, you, you have the day by, you add the moment, you have that moment of how do I, what do I do? And in my case, you know, like a therapist told me what to say to my daughter when I had to explain to her that when I, you know, which I explained to her the day after her third birthday on her third birthday, I, we, I, we waited until, I, you know, my wife passed away three days before my daughter's third birthday. And I waited to tell her so that she could have her third birthday party uh, uh, unaffected. Um, and then I went over and what I had to say to her and practiced it. Um, and then, you know, uh, I mean, it was a very hard adjustment. It was, it was, it was brutal. I did, I, I did and do feel, you know, the, the universe is not a fair place. Things, you know, uh, it doesn't work that way. And uh, I've definitely spent some time raising a middle finger to God. Uh, that's, you know, like I, I, for more for my daughter than for myself, although, you know, yeah, because it, uh, it is the most, the most important person in, in, in a life is, is usually the mom, you know? And, uh, and because I also, you know, it was at a time where I kind of did want to go and see if I could go be a great writer. I had eaten enough shit and felt like I wanted to see what I could do. And that wasn't, you know, that what I, but then what I could do became, I have to, figure out how to raise this child on my own and 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 take care of her and do right by her because she didn't ask for any of this she you know and and um and it's you know it was it's just a it's kind of like you do what you have to do you you wash the pot make the food eat the food wash the pot you know like you put the one foot in front of the other, you know? Um, and uh, I, I mean, it's interesting because I do, it's something I'm trying to reconstruct now is for, for, for a book is, it's trying to raise her through a lot of this and just what it was like and what it was. And, but what can you do? You, you, there's no, it's just how it is. And you, you got to deal with it. You know, like you just and and so, but I, I uh, it was a hard. It, it like it was a bomb. It was just the atom bomb going off, and uh, you know, at the same time, the truth is, is that through everything, through a marriage after that, through that time, my daughter saved my life. You know, I would have been in the bottom of a bottle or, or worse. Uh, uh, but I couldn't do that because I had this little three-year-old who looks up and who who's looking for answers and who has nothing but, you know, this, this weird tattoo guy. 
<laughs> supposed to take her around the city to take her around the city. So uh so yeah, I'm stopping talking now about that. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Well, no, I just I just noticed that there's a the ethos of boxing, I think what drew me in is so often it has this reputation of being one thing for outsiders, but those inside of it, I mean, my first boxing gym was run by a, a judge, a family court judge who was siphoning off juvenile delinquents to try to rehabilitate them. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because he, he was probably, probably the most foul mouthed person I've ever been around in my entire existence. And yet, there were glimpses of hyper articulateness where I went, right. I went, Oh, there's something, there's some code switching going on here. And then I kind of found out that like my dad and him, my dad was not social at all, but like they were in the same environment, like a very close environment. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And like my dad, he hated lawyers and hated judges more than just about anybody and wanted to be around working class people, like wanted to be around those kids and try to help them if he could and that sort of thing. But I was very struck by this surrogate family environment that, that permeated boxing gyms is that these are people that couldn't go to their families to get the support. Right, right, right. And I, I, I'm curious also like how you took those experiences and then like approached your next book where there's some fictionalized fictionalization, but clearly trauma is at the heart of the next book. Like, was that a healing process for you? I don't know. That's a good question. I think it was a coping process. Okay. I think it was definitely a coping process in a way for me to try and digest, um, uh, uh, try and digest everything. And, I, I'll tell you, I, I think that something like that, you have a hole that just stays there. And what does happen is you learn how to live with it and how to deal with it. Um, I think the book, writing the book did help me digest. And just the experience of my late wife's illness and, and what a usually traumatic event it was. Whether I've been able to firmly come to terms with all that trauma uh, that's pro that's uh, i that's a different question and i don't i don't know that i have a good answer for that um but at the time when i was writing it i i knew that distance would help would give me some perspective and i knew it was some way of trying to put down and come to terms with what happened and also for my daughter, when she turned uh, 16, when she was old enough, she could read how much her mom wanted to be there for her and just how, what, just what it mattered for her to be there. And that, and that was kind of, those were my big goals. And also that, you know, to be quite practical, I had a book contract and we had no money and the way for me to get money was to first turn in 200 pages of that book and then finish it. And um, the, the best thing that happened from the first book was really the contract for the second book, for the second book, because that allowed us 
a little bit of safety and a little bit of breathing room um, for me to be able to to take care of her for a little while. Uh, so, you know, it was in some ways it was very it was like it was very practical. And then in some ways it was also, you know, and pragmatic. And then in other ways it was also that I just it was. Uh, almost like a, a, thera- a therapy, therapeutic exercise of trying to come to terms with wh- what's happened, even if emotionally, you know, I, I probably still haven't uh, fully, you know, I'm still probably chewing on that sandwich. How, how much of, like, it's 12 years since you wrote Beautiful Children. How yeah. much has teaching become a central role in your professional life? Um, I love teaching. I love teaching writing. I, I also do work with, you know, clients who are trying to write books privately. Huh. Um, I, and, you know, teaching at NYU allowed me to, uh, even as an adjunct, the, the lucky thing about that is once you teach there a year, you can get, or teach two classes there, you can qualify for adjunct insurance, which, um, which is what I have and, uh, or what I had for a while, for quite a while. Um, I, really do enjoy working with people who care about words and who want to know how to get better and uh, uh, who get excited and turned on by by stories and by how do you and paragraphs and 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 how do, do I write a good paragraph um, and and I think you know, I wish it, you know, like anything in this world, it, uh, uh, the money involved with it is not maybe what it could be, but uh, it, it has become a, a, a decent part of my life and, and, I, and a very enjoyable thing because it's, it's also exciting to see young people who, who do want to do this and who do care about this and who maybe have uh, aspirations. Uh, in grad school, it's, you know, when you, I've taught some in grad school and those are people who are trying to become more professional and who have more obvious ambitions. And sometimes you are in a fight with those ambitions and trying to convince them, you know what, you, you're not ready to go in a ring with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> you're not, you should go in a ring with Glass Joe. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because Ali will, 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 you know, like if you had a, you know, if you dealt with a publisher right now, they would reject your work and you would be crushed and it would take you back three years. You know, like there's a and um, and people, you know, sometimes like if you teach at a really good place, people think because they got in that good place, they're ready. But that's not true you know like a finished book is a different beast it just is and and people whose jobs uh whose jobs depend on them paying you know money for a book they're not going to put their job on the line for something that's not ready yeah you know and and so teaching in grad school means kind of you don't you're not just teaching sentences and paragraphs you have to kind of negotiate that which is okay too because the the flip side is when you get to deal with talented people who are who are on the cusp that's exciting but i do i 
I'm a proponent of teaching. I, I, I don't, I think that there's something truly wonderful about being a, a good corner man, you know, about being a good trainer, that there's, that, you know, that, that there's something truly honorable and, 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 and that, that that probably keeps writing alive in a way that a lot of publishing doesn't because it actually gets people more interested as opposed to just sitting in the corner, you know, and and cranking out, you know, the gong girl or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. Well, how many people since like since beautiful children came out, how yeah. many aspiring writers have written to you to to try to use you as a mentor or a trainer or, or oh, just thank you for writing it? I don't know. Not that many. I mean, when it I when it came out, I got some some things and and on on you know like on facebook i think facebook has a network of people who are ambitious writers who are trying to <laughs> absolutely who are trying to promote themselves by being friends with any writer whose name they've heard of yeah i and i don't know if that's what you're talking about yeah. uh, no, no, those, no, in a good way i mean the nice way not the yeah sh you know, yeah, I, I mean, there's a nice way of looking at that, too. I, I, I probably don't have that way. But um, <laughs> yes, there's definitely, you know what, there's definitely been some people and I definitely keep in touch with and try with whoever I can. Uh, and and the people that I do work with, you know, I, I end up usually forming really strong bonds and relationships with because that's that's more my nature, you know, like a. I'm not a good glad handler, but I am a, a good person at kind of getting deep and serious with someone about what, what's going on with them. And, um, you know, and there's definitely some people where if they need it, you know, they're looking for an agent and they write me and I'll, I do what I can and, and try and help them or introduce them to the person who represents me so he can make a decision about what he thinks. Like I, I'm always trying to, to 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 be a good dude you know uh but at the same time the truth is is that um like it things change and happen fast and and uh my last book which was a book about you know the 1990s and a, you know i put it in the 1990s but it was a book about cancer and a young mom with a wife and that's not one that that the the cool kids are rushing to uh to, to pick up no matter what I may be convinced, what qualities I think it has. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do keep in touch with a lot of my students. That's for sure. You know, anytime they need something, I had one student like get a tattoo from our class. Wow. And they, sent, they sent me a picture of that. And I was like, oh my God, you weren't that good a student. No, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Well, I, I just think it, there was a quote. I mean, it's a movie that's very controversial about boxing. I loved it. I loved having a woman as its lead oh. million dollar baby because yeah. I, I thought it had some of the best writing. I mean, you were talking about FX tool earlier. That short story is such a great short story. So beautiful. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember it was that line and reading over some of your reviews, it re reminded me of you and, and, and also how I felt for a long time, because I endured the same thing, is um, 
if there's magic in boxing, it's the magic of fighting battles beyond endurance, beyond cracked ribs, ruptured kidneys, and detached retinas. It's the magic of risking everything for a dream that nobody sees but you. Yeah, that's right. And when you were talking about, I think you were interviewed and you said, at a certain point, you're 38 when your first book hits. You'd had many, many years of people saying, what do you do where you didn't feel entitled to say, I'm right. a fucking writer. Fuck right. you. <laughs> like, no, I was, because I was trying to be a writer, but I was, I was trying. And, you know, I didn't go to those, some of those literary parties because it's, it would be soul crushing. Yeah. It's so even now, I, I, I wouldn't want to go to one because... I don't want anyone, you know, there's that line from, uh, uh, I, I guess it's from The Color of Money. Didn't you used to be fast, Eddie Felton, you know? Yes, yes. You know, and, and then someone has to come up to the same kid and say, he's fast, Eddie Felton. Who the fuck are you? Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, True. And, I, and I'll be honest, I have no desire to go in a room and have, and have a bunch of, of little young arrogant whatever's look me up and down and dismiss me because they don't you know yeah I, I can't I like that's not that's not any interest of me but what you said about you know and 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 then to be on the other end of trying to do something and be in a room and and feel like I have so much I have so much to give I have so much to share and no no one really cares and know that there's like a, a machinery out there that does exist, that does want good books. There's editors who you presume are 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 honest and true and, and, and give you an honest will give you an honest shot. And that you're not in that world, that you're not part of that world. I'd rather just stay home and work on my work on my book. Yeah. You know? And, and and build the bomb in my basement and see what I could do. And um, I that that idea of putting everything in it, of a dream that you don't even quite know, and reaching for something that seems to be beyond you, you know, it's way better to. That's something you can plug into more. The, 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 I mean, I believe I I wouldn't even know that I was doing that, but that sounds right. That feels right, because you know, a book is not you at your a book is the remains of you at all your best writing moments. You know, it is, it is better than what you can actually do because it's the best of this series of moments and this series of decisions you've made over a very long time that survives after you've got rid of all the worst stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of an amazing, wonderful thing. The difference between my ex-wife's, her in life and her on a page, you know, massive, massive. Her on the page is astonishing. You know, I, I like to believe me on the page can be astonishing. You on the page at your best, astonishing, right? Yeah, you know? I, that's what we yeah. try. Huh? Yeah. But you're right. I mean, it is very odd to lead a double life of who we are on the page versus our private lives. And I, I think that's been one of the weirdest things about covering boxing is 
the life seems so extreme that you could never have an ordinary life. And then you meet them and, you know, there are ordinary elements to who they are, but then there's other stuff, which is just beyond the realm of understanding how they can lead that existence. It's, uh, it seems, that sounds right. It seems amazing to me, you know, like I can remember before, like I used to love Larry Holmes when he was undefeated and he was, and, and he was kind of at the, the height of it. And he was on ABC fighting Ernie Shavers or fighting, you know, whoever. And once my dad took us, me and my brother, to, they used to have at the, there was a casino called the Silver Slipper and they had a monthly Thursday night fight. And my dad took us, I think we, we insisted, you know, we, he wanted, we wanted him to take us to these fights. And it was this little smoky room, you know, in all kind of, eight, ten rounders, and there was Larry Holmes in three-piece suit, hanging out, drinking a beer with the friends, you know? And me and my brother both went up to him, and my brother goes, I'm your biggest fan, and I was like, no, I'm your biggest fan. Mm. And Larry Holmes sits there, and he's like, uh, don't argue about who's my biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> Just the most uninteresting thing a person could say in the most uninteresting way a person could say it. <laughs> and this insight into, you know, he was just some dude. He was just some guy, like seeing a UNLV basketball player hanging out in a minor league baseball game, eating French fries. Just some dude. Right. <laughs> some guy. And doing these amazing things, you know, amazing what he could, what he did, what he could do, you know, and it's also true. Don't you think that with some of these people, like, one of, I guess, how do I put this? Ali had sustained greatness in him. He could rise to an event and to a second event and to a third event. And I think, you know, Thomas Hearns had a level of that and then at a certain point couldn't but Sugar Ray it wasn't just a spotlight once that he could handle he could handle the spotlight however many times you know more big fights probably than anyone except Ali you when you you know in our modern era if you think about and uh as opposed to someone like Buster Douglas who could do it once yeah well, and I think it's true of writers, too. I mean, you know, Joseph Heller puts out Cash 22, and it's like there's going to be a million of these. No, there's not. That was enough. That was enough for him. Yeah. Like, he never was going to work that hard again. He was never going to work that hard no. again. Maybe something happened. I think, honestly, he worked for 10 years on Something Happened, and he thought that it was that kind of book. And then when it didn't, I think he decided I'm not. Uh, this is too fucking hard for me. I'm, I'm not doing this again. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird. I remember reading that as a kid before. Yeah. Before I think writers, when we read it, we're also thinking about how it was constructed. Like we yeah. wrote Neurotic Tick. And I remember when I went back to read it as a writer, I was like, oh, it's really obvious why she couldn't write another one because I don't think she organized this. I think an editor organized <laughs> this into something coherent. But I don't even understand the message of this book because Atticus <laughs> Finch is a saint. 
There's right. no attention to him at all. There's no arc to his morality. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a jumble of things that happens to be magical, but it's not really, I think the writer got kind of lucky with these ingredients. I mean, it seemed, it's so interesting. Did you read that Casey Kep last year put out like a follow, you know, about how she was writing a, a second book and she actually got a hold of the manuscript and it was a whole big deal. But I think you're, it seems true. You know, there's times where people, they manage it once. And then there's times where there's these other people where you see them man, trying, you know, where they can't stop, you know, like Roth and Updike who seem to put out a book every year. Yeah. And the truth is, is, okay, I'll, I'll watch, I'll go watch Ali fight Jerry Quarry. I guess so, you know, because that's the fight you're showing me. But really, really, I want to see him fight Frazier. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and that's kind of the feeling about some of these these authors is you got to do I and mean, you got to do it for money. Like Norman Mailer was just he was writing to pay ex-wives. Um, so he just kept having to crank it out. But it's also true that we kind of want the the but. We want the great ones, but then while you're writing it, do you know if it's a great one? Do you even know? True. You know, do you know what you have? Well, and, and I think the other thing is that we want, we have these great books we like. We want an artist who's really interesting. Same with like athletes, that there are athletes who get to the top and there's nothing particularly compelling about them beyond us denying that they're in fact a complete sociopath. Right. Like a monomaniacal <laughs> sociopath who doesn't drink, eat in excess, drink, is totally faithful to his wife in a way that he's never considered being otherwise because his entire life is to become this. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's odd that we want eureka moments with genius and... And I mean, like you, you were talking about Buster Douglas, but I mean, you could just as easily say the same thing about Mike Tyson, that he gets a few years of being this phenomenal phenom of an athlete, but he's so unstable that there was no way to manage that for any duration. Well, I mean, that seems true. That seems ultimately true. But then it's also true that the people who, who ended up being in charge of him were scuds. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and and which even would have been fine if they would have been good at the thing that they were supposed to do, or if the thing they were supposed to do would have been take care of him instead of just churn out and get as much as you can from him. That's the thing, you know, is that there came a point where he allowed people around him, where, uh, whether through his own self-destructiveness or what, or mistrust, or, or or just didn't care, or arrogance, they didn't care about Mike Tyson being in shape or being a good fighter, they or any of that. I I mean I think very, you know I remember I remember going to Ireland with this great Cuban champion Guillermo Rigondeaux that I did a biography about and. Uh -huh. He had a Hall of Fame trainer at the time named Ronnie Shields. Very nice guy. If you look at the fight, like if you watch some great fights from, let's say, I think probably as early as the late 80s, but maybe it's more like all the 90s. He's uh -huh. in the corner of Evander Holyfield. I mean, just a 
ton of great fighters. And I was thinking, wow, this is a Hall of Fame trainer who's working with one of the most talented boxers in the history of boxing. Right, right. Has the facility to do anything. Like, it's like a fucking Shakespeare of boxing in terms of his facility. What are they going to do? Like, if you're a Hall of Fame trainer, imagine the chemistry they're going to have. And there was nothing that they did that was remotely inspired. <laughs> nothing. Like, I mean... He spent 95% of the training camp playing Angry Birds on his, like, laptop. And so it's just like he was, you know, it was a very blue-collar approach to it, which is we'll right, do right. our two hours of training, make sure he's in shape, really basic strategy for the opponent, and that's it. They're not discussing anything. They're not friends. It's just, like, a really basic, I mean, it was like porn. It was just, like, go in there, lay pipe. Right. Money shot. We're good. Done. We're done. Yeah. Right. Which just kind of surprised me because it's like. Even as you're saying it, it surprises me. I imagine that there's so much going on, you know? Well, and I, and I think it's funny too, right? Because it's, it's like you have all of these quote unquote experts and I don't think anybody knows. We don't know before two guys have fought how the styles are going to unfold. And all, all the time, you know, like, I just, by nature, am always picking the underdog every right. single time. He'll right. find a way to do it because that's what I'm cheering for. Right, right. So 99 times out of 100, I couldn't be more wrong. And in the Tyson Fury one, I remember talking to a guy for a podcast, and he's saying, what do you think is going to happen? I was like, well, what if, what if Fury just does exactly what he says, comes forward, He's bigger, he has longer reach, he's a better boxer. Deontay Wilder is a terrible boxer, he has terrible balance, he has no footwork, he's never been on his heels in his career. Right. Um, this seems like a pretty gross mismatch, doesn't it? If all he does is just do exactly what he says, walk forward, which is the easiest thing to do as a boxer, throw a lot of punches, and you're bigger and longer and taller than him. Is this even going to be competitive? And he just did exactly that. And it's like, could it just be that simple and pedestrian an explanation? And I'm kind of like, yeah, I think it could. Amazing. It's amazing, right? Amazing. I mean, it must be easy to do it. I mean, I, I, I don't want to do it. I, I was watching Deontay Wilder in Alabama throw that right <coughs> sparring. I right. don't want to get hit with that any more than I want somebody to swing a baseball bat at my mouth. But right, it's it's the same thing. Like it's basically the same thing. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But but in terms of the skill level of him, I had never seen an elite fighter in my life who was more prosaic and and kind of maladroit than this guy. Well, I saw what did I see on TV? You may have even had a link to it it may have been through you but i don't think i think i'm somewhere else. no it was on like msg one night they were interviewing mark breland yeah. who when i was a kid was the next sugar ray oh, when i was a teenager amazing amateur amazing just a really maybe the best amateur fighter in the history of the united states yeah yeah you know yep, like sir. like that's not that's not uh uh over dramatization to say that no 
No way. Right. Like he's in there. He's in the, he's in it. Like someone's got to beat him to be the best. Let's put it that way. Yep. (laughs) And they asked him, could he fight with Ali? Like, how is he as a boxer? Maybe it was ESPN or someone, but I think it was like on MSG, that boxing show they have. And, you know, he's being paid by this man. And so you can see him struggling to keep a straight face. (laughs) Yeah, go on. You know, and trying to come up with an answer that is going to keep him employed. Yeah. And finally, he's like, no, I I think Muhammad would get got it, you know? Yeah. But you could just see that. And this is a guy where Mark Breland, if there's anyone who knows how to fight, who understands boxing, that that would be the guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Wizard. Wizard. So. And then the idea that they're going to blame him, that, that, that that's whose fault, that that's whose fault it was. Not that you got in a hundred, you know, whatever, a 50 pound suit of armor for 15 minutes before a fight that you thought that was a good idea. Yeah. Straight out of fucking eyes wide shut. What the oh hell my, was like, that? Like, guy? Oh my. like this, this dude is six foot 10. He weighs 400 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> what? You think you want to be fresh for him? Yeah. Oh, as, I mean, as, as opposed to this garish, unbelievably strange, uh, you know, Mardi Gras outfit for Black History Month. Okay. Oh, oh my God. I mean, and it, and you, it's one of those things where you want, I mean, you just, maybe it's as simple, like talking to you makes me think it's as simple as what you said. It's really all workmanlike stuff. They do their three hours of work, then they go do their thing, someone else does their thing. And then no one feels like it's my job to say to Deontay Wilder, no, no, <laughs> get in the room. <laughs> don't do this. Then no one can say that to him. No, and, and I mean, I'll add to what you said about Breland, because when I went to Alabama, Breland was there. and. I'm I'm friendly with Breland. I'm not friends with him, but I but we know each other. Right. And I walked up to him and I hate to say that I feel really bad because it was a trap. But I went up to him as as Wilder was sparring in the ring. And I said to Breland, how old was he again when he put on gloves for the first time? And Breland was like, he knew something was up. And he was like, he was 19. It's like, oh yeah, what about you? And he said, uh. I was eight. And I went, right. oh, okay, well, where's he at relative to you? <laughs> and he just couldn't let it go. And he's like, he, we were both watching Wilder in the ring, who looks like a circus clown on stilts walking around. Like right, he looks right. like a flamingo trying to get at a fish, but, you know, was, you know, more comfortable on one leg. And he just couldn't resist saying he's at where I was at about 11 years old now. Right. You know, and and then he made the point to say, though, but you have to remember, he isn't 147 pounds in the 1980s like I was. He's a heavyweight in today's era of heavyweights. So it doesn't make any difference. Right, right, right. 
Well, I guess that's the question about that makes sense, right? Because he can not, he can hit you with a baseball bat. Yeah. Yeah. And he can I mean, do it by jumping across the ring in a split second. Right, right. I mean, I guess that's the question I, I, I wonder about Fury is how good is he? Like, legitimately, how good is he, do you think? I think he, he is, if you put him against Lennox Lewis or Ali or any serious great fighter, you know, he's above average. But I, I don't think, I think we got into a weird period where you had three big, strong guys who accumulated perfect records with high knockouts for the most part. And once they started getting tested against mediocre competition, like top 20 competition, all of them showed considerable liability. Yeah. Right. Right. So, right. you know, Ali at his athletic peak, does he have any trouble with these guys? I, I doubt it. Because he's also was 6'3". He was also yeah. big enough that he could stay in a ring with them. Yeah. And I mean, it's... You know, which isn't to say, I mean, some of these comparisons are fun because it's like if Ali had trouble with Joe Frazier, how does he not have trouble with Mike Tyson, who's bigger, stronger, faster? Because Mike Tyson did not have Joe Frazier. I, even as I'm saying this, I remember George Foreman knocking him around like a pin, like a pinwheel doll. Yeah. But I want to say that I want to say that Joe Frazier had a better job, but I, I can't really say that. Right. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just saying. I don't know either. Well, that's a great question. You know, young Tyson, when he moves his head and he's ducking and weaving, like, what does Ali do against that? That's right. Well, I mean, if 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 he has 36 rounds with Joe Frazier, where he's almost, you know, fighting to save his life in yeah. a couple of those things. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Tyson is a fuck of a lot faster and hits a lot harder and is a lot bigger. I mean. Frazier was chubby at 205 pounds. Although Frazier, that third, I mean, the first and the third fight, there was no chub on, on Joe Frazier. Yeah, but he's not a modern athlete. No, right, like, right, like right. Got, you know, where they look like bodybuilders, but. Right, um, no, you're you, right. Did you go to any fights in Vegas while you were growing up there? I went, you know what, I, my dad, I went to. I went to a couple of Tyson fights because people would sell the tickets at my, my, to my parents and we would go and sit in the grandstands for like, I think I was there when he won the title actually. Against Burbick. I think so. I'm, 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 I know I went to a couple of those during that era. Wow. I think I was in the grandstands for some of that. I wish I still had the tickets of that. We went to the pay-per-view, not to the fight fight, but I was in the pay-per-view at Caesars Palace for both both Leonard Duran fights huh. surrounded by people who had bet huge amounts of money on that fight. And um, the first one I would say is one of the most exciting places I've ever been in, in my life. Wow. Like that is a sporting event. Everyone in there was going nuts. People were standing packed and they all had huge amounts of money on it and they were all shit faced and it was awesome. <laughs> and it was awesome. You know, and it was like a little, like imagine an auditorium in the or a, a off, you know, like a, a conference room in the in the bowels of Caesar's Palace, with TV set up and and just beer flowing. And then the second one was like a similar situation, and we were surrounded by people who had bet huge amounts of money on Duran, and then he quit. 
Right. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, and that was crazy. That was am- crazy and amazing. But um, what used to happen is my the outdoor auditorium for Caesar's Palace ran was in where the tennis pavilion used to be and the back parking lot of Caesars. And that's where they built it. And right ran running right next to it was the I-15 freeway is or is the I-15 freeway. So what would happen often is cars would park on the freeway or people would drive up and down past Caesars to watch the fight. And my dad used to put us in the car and we would turn to NPR, which would have or, or, or to, to the radio state, to some radio station. I want to say NPR, but probably not. That would have updates every three minutes on what happened that round. And we would drive up and down the I-15 past the auditorium, past the, the Caesars Palace to um, and, and listen to the fight. And then the next week we would watch it because usually ABC broadcasts the fight the next week. Amazing. Like, I'm, I'm sure that that's how I watched Leonard Hearns because I was rooting for Hearns. Well, what's uh, if you could go to any fight, last question, any, yeah, what's go to for front row? Oh my god, oh god, uh, um, the fight. Well, it's not fair to say. Probably the most important fight in the you know in modern history is Lewis Schmeling too. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. Like, and you know, there's that great book. Oh my God, that great book about it. Uh, God, I forget the title, but man, that's a super book. And and just for that reason, you may want to maybe that would be it. But for pure, the best fight would pro- either be uh, the best, the, you know, what seems to be the best fight of all time, I would, uh, would probably be uh, uh, Ali Frazier 3. Yeah, Manila, that's a tough one to beat. Manila, then maybe, but maybe it could be Ali Frazier 1 and maybe Hearns Hagler. Hearns Hagler is the best fight of our lifetime. Yeah, I think you're, and I mean, Thomas Hauser told me, I asked him that, and the first fight he ever went to, or the first major fight he went to on his own, was Ali Frazier 1. Uh-huh. And when I've asked him his top three fights all time, he says Ali Frazier 1, Ali Frazier 1, and Ali Frazier 1. Like, there was just nothing. There's nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And... I remember like walking, like once the credentials came through and it was up in the air for Mayweather Pacquiao and you walk in there and there's Trump and and 9 million celebrities. It's this, you know, if a bomb had or a plane had flown into that fucking MGM Grand. Right, right. right, I don't know where America is as far as billionaires and celebrities and entertainers, et cetera. But as soon as the bell rung, I've never seen the air out of a room just right. vanish. Right. It was like, I remember, oh, this sucks. I paid money for that goddamn fight and watched it, and I was just felt felt ripped off. Felt ripped off. Oh, it was brutal. 
Right. Brutal. Charles, thank you so much for this. Oh, I had a great time. Pleasure. I had a great time, Bryn. I had a great time. Let's grab a coffee after all this craziness. Oh, is I'd, I'd love to. Let's, it's a date. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye, bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. Thank you.